His speech boiled down to one line where he said, your aid is not charity, it's an investment in global security. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 4th. Today, Julia Yaffe joins me to break down the dueling New Year's addresses delivered by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Russian President Vladimir Putin, and what their remarks reveal about the true nature of the war in Ukraine. And later, Ben Landy and Eric Gardner discuss the wave of copyright deaths sweeping through Hollywood and what it could mean for Disney, DC Comics, Wall Street, and more. We hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Julia Yaffe is here with me. How you doing, Julia? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you? I'm good. I just got goosebumps watching Volodymyr Zelensky's New Year's Eve message on YouTube, right? which is what we're talking about today and, and comparing it to Putin's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if there was a war, I mean, this is a wars are information wars these days, too. But if there was a, like a, a, a war for best content creation, I mean, Ukraine would blow Russia out of the water because this like the idea of like a speech is one thing. And Zelensky has a powerful presence gives a good speech. When he spoke to Congress in December, he delivered it in English, which carried its own power. Um, yeah. But, you know, like splicing in greatest hits of the war, like moving music, yeah. like really inspiring footage alongside the speech, like really Man, made... you're giving me goosebumps just like through <laughs> recall of the speech. Like you're mentioning these parts of the speech and I'm getting goosebumps just remembering that part. So for people listening, like why, why should they go watch Zelensky's speech? I mean, I don't know. For me, I think the caveat is that for me, this war is incredibly personal and always has been, right? Um, so I will say that watching this address, this New Year's address, which by the way, in this part of the world, New Year's is the biggest holiday of the year because in the Soviet Union, where there was no religion and no God, they took Christmas and moved it to New Year's Eve and made it uh, a secular holiday. So there was a New Year's tree rather than a Christmas tree. There was Father Frost rather than Santa Claus who brought presents to children that they opened up not on Christmas morning, but on New Year's morning. And that is the big holiday. And a lot of things have happened in these New Year's addresses. They're a very important way for leaders in this part of the world, for example, in Russia, to send a message to their people. For example, this was how Boris Yeltsin used he used his New Year's address to the nation on December 31st, 1999 to spring it on the Russian people that they were going to have a new president named Vladimir Putin. So that's kind of the scene setter. This time around in Ukraine, Zelensky took this kind of very post-Soviet tradition and he showed 
yet another time how Ukraine had moved away from its Soviet past, right? It, this was, it, this didn't smack of neo-Soviet bullshit in the way that Putin's New Year's address did when he mm-hmm. spoke in front of these wooden-faced soldiers or actors playing Russian soldiers. <laughs> he delivered an address. He's standing at night in front of some government buildings in Kiev, and he's shot from different angles. Like you said, there's different moments from the war. Greatest hits, I think, you know, is is in is in quotes because some of them are some of the worst moments of the war, right? Like the bombed theater in Mariupol with the words children written on the front sidewalk that you can literally see from space. But then moments like the liberation of Kherson and people crying in the streets and uh, lifting Ukrainian soldiers up in the air and giving them watermelons, which is a uh, food from the region. He made it modern. Unlike this neo-Soviet tradition where you have this wooden leader saying some very banal, trite things or using it to make a political announcement, he made it very modern and Western and he addressed the people. He addressed the people of Ukraine in a very heartfelt and a direct way. He talked about the way that the last year was a life-changing year for everybody. The way that 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 last year for everybody, he said, started on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. He talked about all the sacrifice that Ukrainians had made. He said at one point, he said, "We've cried all our tears, we've screamed all our prayers, and now we're just focused on winning." He, you know, he spoke to everybody. He spoke to the people in a way that wasn't condescending. He spoke to them as his fellow citizens and acknowledged everything they've been suffering, everything they've given to this war. He made it very clear why Ukrainians were fighting, what they had given to fight this war, and why they were fighting it. In one speech, one 16 or 17 minute speech with moving music and amazing kind of video, a very clear distillation of that, which was in very stark contrast to Putin's speech. Yeah, Putin, neo-Soviet is a great way to describe that speech. I mean, just standing yeah. there. He's got, the, they literally, like the soldiers behind him, if, if they aren't actors, uh, li- literally look like cardboard cutouts and they're just like scowling behind him. Right, and, and, and uh, um, you know, there, were vi- there was video being shared on social media uh, of Ukrainian soldiers watching Zelensky's address in the field and, and sobbing. Mm-hmm. Which is just so powerful, and it and it it's a reminder of the fact that he is very much his people's president. Whereas Putin is somewhere up there; he's never visited the battlefield. He's never gone out to really talk to people. Uh, he may have visited a hospital here and there inside Russia, mm-hmm. and his speech was all about you know the vague Western enemy and Western elites, and about historical lands, and. It was a speech that was very short and kind of all over the place, and and it didn't make clear why Russians were sacrificing their loved ones, why their economy was in the shitter, mm-hmm. why they were now isolated from the world. And then he kind of pivoted weirdly at the end to being like, you know, New Year's is a time for family and friends, and make sure you tell your loved ones you love them. Tell them nice things. Tell them things from the heart. It was just like, what the fuck? Well, so I want to ask about 
Zelensky's visit to the United States, Julia, mm-hmm. which happened right before Christmas. So some people, some people listening to this might have missed it or, or, or been, you know, busy with holiday stuff and, and um, not seen it on television. What, what was your takeaway from his speech? And then separately from your conversations in Washington, like how was his visit received at the White House? So his speech, I think, boiled down to one line where he said, your aid is not charity. It's an investment in global security. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, this was him coming to the U.S., His ma- uh, the main sponsor of the Ukrainian war effort by far, and saying, please keep supporting us. Please keep sending us weapons. We know that this is costing you and your taxpayers tens of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. But here's why you should keep doing it. And we are grateful but also to explain to you why you should keep giving us that aid. I thought it was interesting to compare both this speech in Congress and the New Year's speech to where where we were around this time last year. Around this time last year, Zelensky was pissing off everybody with a D after their name in Washington because he was leaning on everybody in the White House, on Democrats, on the on everybody on the Hill, kill Nord Stream 2, to give him more weapons. And he was doing it publicly by criticizing the Biden administration, by supporting people like Ted Cruz, who was just a massive thorn in the Biden administration's side mm-hmm. uh, and you know, holding up the Biden administration's nominees and Democrats were like, are you kidding me? You're coming to us and asking us for aid, but then at the same time on the same visit, you're coming and praising the guy who won't let us send any ambassadors to other countries and won't let us appoint anybody to the State Department. Can you just shut the fuck up? And and like, and be a little bit more grateful and a little bit more diplomatic. And then fast forward a year, and he has toned down how he approaches the US publicly. A lot of this wrangling happens in private because he understands that it is not in his, very much not in his interest to alienate the Biden administration mm-hmm. right now, and uh, that it would it's much more effective to push on them in private while pushing on them publicly, not in terms of specific things like, hey, the US, we want a no-fly zone. Remember when they were they wanted a no-fly zone mm-hmm. in Ukraine? And that's just, you know, I guess pun intended, but that's never gonna fly in the US right now. And then also you look at the New Year's speech, and there, that I saw this going around on social media as well. You know, you compare the Zelensky New Year's Eve speech 2021 and 2022, mm. And it's like the man has aged 15 years in a year, right? He goes from this like baby-faced, chubby kind of um, entertainer with a 25 or 28% approval rating in his country to a man who clearly hasn't slept in the last year with a scraggly beard and has been basically leading his country through what is essentially its war of independence. This is the last thing I wanted to finish mm-hmm. on, actually, was a lot of Republicans who attended Zelensky's address didn't clap. I mean, and I know the the, the party, the Republican Party has become more isolationist in the Trump era. Um, but like, I think Josh, Josh Hawley skipped the address and said he doesn't want to be part of a photo op for like 
reckless spending on a war where there's no accountability for the money. And it's just like, one, it's just striking. Maybe it's because, you know, you and I, we came of age in the Bush era politically. <laughs> and it's like, it's striking that Republicans would either protest or, or not applaud for this guy who is very obviously, you know, maybe flawed, but a hero <laughs> for democracy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then two, like, just a show of common respect. Do you know how fucking hard it is to get out of Ukraine <laughs> and come here? Like that was a, like the security measures it must have taken to smuggle Zelensky out of Ukraine, yeah, bring him to the U.S. Like show some fucking respect. I like, don't think they're it just about really was right now. Yeah, yeah, and and honestly, again, what I keep coming back to are things like. Again, this is it's politics, right? It's it, yeah, it so much of it is, is not about substance. People people ask me, you know, what happens when Americans eventually get compassion fatigue and now they have compassion fatigue. I think personally that as long as the line of the Josh Hawleys and the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts who sat there not clapping and looking at their phones doesn't take root, as long as it's not a hostile line to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Ukraine is okay because I think the ma- the mainstream of both parties is still very for Ukraine. I mm-hmm. think most, unfortunately, we're both but like the Venn diagram where the two parties do mostly overlap. They they agree on on this kind of thing and they agree in robust defense spending. So Ukraine will be fine. But to people like Holly, I would say, you know, guess where javelins are built that we're sending to Ukraine or or that we're just putting back on the shelves at the Pentagon to replace the ones we already sent to Ukraine. They're built in Troy, Alabama, which is in a county that carried Trump by 20 points in 2020. They've doubled their production uh, to feed this beast right now. But if they mm-hmm. want to produce any more, they're going to have to build out more factory space. They're going to have to hire and train more workers. And these these are highly skilled, highly paid manufacturing jobs in one of the reddest states, in one of the reddest districts in America. Most of the money that we're allocating to Ukraine doesn't leave America and or it comes back to America because these are American-made weapons. So, and they're, again, these are people who say they want uh, American manufacturing jobs, and here they are, but <laughs> I don't know. It's almost like politicians don't really say what they mean or don't mean what they say. An astute point, Julia. Yes, bring back American jobs from China. Well, yeah, guess what? We yeah. can. All right, thank you so much, Julia, for for walking us through this. I, I encourage everyone, actually, just to fire up yeah. YouTube and watch Zelensky's speech. It's like 18 minutes long. Um, and yeah, but it'll make you cry. <laughs> it will. It'll give you some feelings. All right, Julia, Happy New Year. We will talk to you soon. Happy New Year, Peter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with Puck's legal world expert, Eric Gardner. Hey, Eric. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So you've been following the copyright and IP wars in Hollywood for a while. And uh, of course, every year there's another huge batch of stories and characters that are released into the public domain. Are there any particularly interesting ones we got access to on January 1st? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most interesting, I think, is the last few uh, stories of of Sherlock Holmes, uh, considering that there was such a huge fight over the years to kind of keep Sherlock Holmes out of the public domain. Now, once and for all, it's been established that the entire canon of of Sherlock Holmes, at least the Arthur Conan Doyle uh, uh, stories, are in the public domain. Uh, That and uh, we now have talking movies in, in the public domain. 1927 was the was the first year that um, there were talking pictures, the sound, sound uh, famously with the movie The Jazz Singer, and now that's in the public domain as well. Uh, and beyond that, there's uh, lots of interesting, uh, you know, books from from Virginia Woolf and William Faulkner and others. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think the public will enjoy that. You also reported this is the last year that Mickey Mouse is in the, in the public domain, although it's sort of a, a funny one, because my understanding is that the character that's actually entering the public domain at the end of this year is Steamboat Willie, who um, he doesn't speak. He doesn't have pupils. He has these funny uh, long skinny arms and no gloves that we're used to seeing. So I'm not sure how big a deal that's going to be for Disney. But it is funny how these characters sort of slip into the public domain in phases, right? Like you've reported that there's a similar situation with Superman. Yeah. So um, if you think about it, uh, you know, what goes into the public domain is is basically what was published many years ago. Uh, in terms of corporate authorship, it's usually around 95 years. So that brings us to 1928 next year. And that is when we see the first version of Mickey Mouse, uh, Steamboat Willie. But, you know, Mickey Mouse had evolved over time in, in, in different TV shows and movies. And eventually those will be brought into the public domain too. So there'll be a much more colorful round uh, version of, of Mickey Mouse that gets into the public domain. Meanwhile, I think that the bigger prize is is 10 years from now, we start entering the, the golden age of comics where Superman and other DC characters start appearing in the public domain. And uh, you know those characters are, are still very, very much vibrant. They're the stars of, of you know huge motion pictures, and I imagine that that Warner Brothers and those who own the DC universe, you know, really want to hold on to those. Is all this stuff like a big concern for the studios? The fact that they have these characters that are just incredibly valuable um, for big multi-billion-dollar franchises that they are losing access to those exclusive rights. Uh, yes and no. I think I think it's on their minds, certainly, that they w- won't have exclusive rights anymore. But that being said, uh, it, they still can create new new versions of these characters. They just have to share them with others. And but you know, also I would would point out that that these studios have huge advantages over anyone else who just wants to make a you know a, a, a copycat character. Uh, they already have you know streaming distribution networks. They have uh, relationships with key players in the in the industry. They have trademarks on the on many of these uh, characters and uh, lots of ways that that they still have an advantage over everyone else. 
uh, I think that potentially, you know, might uh, instigate some fights down the line. On the other hand, uh, you know, I think that there are some advantages to them for having these characters in the public domain um, because, you know, uh, they get sued all the time for, for, you know, infringing stuff and they'll be able to point to what's in the public domain as well. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, it seems like the stakes for these rights to the characters have gotten higher and higher because Hollywood is so IP-driven now. Um, the industry is a little bit more risk-averse. So, you know, fewer original ideas and franchises also means there's more value invested in the older ones. Have you seen that play out in terms of the scale and stakes of litigation at all? Or, or do you feel like the studios, as you mentioned, are sort of moving in the direction of creating new versions of characters so that they can sort of reset the IP uh, copyright clock? Well, I think that, you know, most studios definitely do rely on intellectual property. It's just that most of the intellectual property is still young enough that they don't have to worry about the public domain. Uh, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, as I point out in my piece, is, you know, a valuable character, but not quite as valuable to Disney as, as it used to be. Uh, I, I'm not sure it's one of the 10 most valuable uh, properties. Uh, but if you look at other properties, ranging from Star Wars to Avatar to, uh, you know, the, the Avengers, those definitely are rights that, that they you know enjoy exclusively and will fight to the death over um, you know as we see right now by a lot of the the Avengers characters you know they're they're in litigation with with a lot of the uh, comic book heirs over over you know who can, controls these characters so I, I definitely think that that they're important to, to uh, the studios the studios you know don't do as much original uh, works as, as they used to they definitely do a lot of sequels and remakes makes and you know are very reliant on existing intellectual property but i think that they can adapt to um this new era where things start trickling into the public domain as well what are the studios doing to deal with the the heirs of authors um for instance the you know the, the children or widows or grandchildren of the the men who wrote some of those very popular comic book characters in the during the golden age you mentioned are, are they are these people mostly sort of looking for a payout? Like, what, what is sort of the relationship that they are seeking to these franchises that they have rights that they can reclaim or, or with the studios? Right. So first of all, it, it, this takes a little bit of understanding of copyright law. So in the 1970s, when Congress decided to extend the copyright term, they decided to give authors and their heirs like one last chance at the at the fruits of, of, of their creation. So they can terminate a, a, a grant to a publisher or a studio after a set time. Usually it's 35 years for older works. It's 56 years. But there's an exception to that. And that exception is when the work is created basically as a work for hire, as, as a corporate authorship. So you're basically working for the studio. The studio owns and is c considered the author of the work rather than the person who, who creates the, 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 the work physically. And so what we see right now is, you know, some litigation going on about the, you know, circumstances of what happened many, many decades ago, you know, like how these works were created, at whose instance and expense were these uh, works created, and at stake is basically who controls uh, the, these characters and who contro controls these franchises. At worst, I don't think that Disney is going to lose these characters. I think that they're just going to have to share portions of them with, with some of the estates, but still sharing 
proportions of billion dollar franchises is no small thing. I mean, that's uh, that's basically, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. It changes the, the economic calculus of, of creating the, these, uh, you know, motion pictures and, and, and properties and something else that, that gets a lot overlooked. But when you're a co-owner of a copyright, you have the ability to uh, license it to someone else. So if the if the heirs can grab at least a portion uh, of these copyrights, they can, you know, theoretically license a different studio to, to make uh, uh, movies featuring the, these characters. One thing that caught my eye in your recent reporting is that even when a character enters the public domain, that doesn't necessarily make them less valuable. Like, you know, of course, it helps if a character or an idea is exclusive to one company. But you mentioned Sherlock Holmes. That generates a huge amount of money all across Hollywood. There have been so many different versions of Sherlock that have been out there from, you know, the CBS series. The BBC had its own series. Uh, there's the Guy Ritchie franchise at Warner Brothers. Netflix has a, um, a TV series that's based around, I think it's his niece, Anola Holmes. Um, I assume that each of those generate their own new copyrights, but also other sort of litigation pitfalls as, as they're sort of competing with each other. How have you seen that play out? Yeah, I think that's one of the bis- biggest misconceptions about the public domain is that, you know, when things go in, that's going to mean less intellectual property. That's going to be m- mean more freedom for everyone to adapt at will. What I see a different situation developing. I see, you know, a big famous character like Sherlock Holmes goes into the public domain, and that means that there are lots of versions competing with each other uh, in the marketplace. But each of these versions, so long as they contribute something original, are entitled to their own copyright rights and they are entitled to their own protection and so we have this situation where you know everyone may have to be careful about not tripping over over someone else um and you know a few years ago uh you know as i point out in my piece there was you know cbs announced that they were going to do elementary a a modern take on sherlock holmes bbc had already done their modern take on Sherlock Holmes. And, and so they thought long and hard about, you know, whether this should prompt legal action. I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think we're going to see studios sued for using characters in a particular way. Um, you know, it, it might even be funny enough, you know, Disney being sued over Mickey Mouse. Um, you know, the public's right to do something is going to instigate all sorts of interesting intellectual property claims, uh, interesting intellectual property lawsuits. So, you know, when people think that, you know, the public domain means the end of intellectual property, no, 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 no. It, it just means the beginning of it, <laughs> uh, the, the rebirth of it, because, uh, you know, they, we're going to see lots of challenges and lots of interesting cases and, and, you know, very close readings about, you know, what's going into these um, works and what's original and what's not. Well, it might be a headache for the studios, but uh, definitely a benefit for consumers from, from my perspective. Eric, thanks as always for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.